Revelation. We're talking about the millennial reign of Christ today. And if you spend any time like nerding out on theology, this is like one of the big ones. This is one of the big ones that everybody argues about. And um, I hope today, my big, here's my big hope today, is that as I've been trying to persuade you throughout this whole book, that Revelation, it's not a science fiction movie. It's not a fantasy story about something that's going to happen a long time from now to some other people. And so therefore, it doesn't really have a lot to do with us. I've been trying to persuade you that Revelation is really a whole lot about us. It teaches us a lot about us. It's a pastoral letter that's meant to encourage us in the midst of this evil age by helping us to see the unseen world. Because we're so focused on, we're so tempted to focus on what we can see, what we can buy, what we can spend, what we can eat, what we can wear. Uh, And as Brian told us earlier, that's just inherently unstable. And so God, through the whole book of Revelation, is trying to convince us that there's a whole unseen realm that's more real than the world we can see, and that's what we need to look at and trust in. And this passage of the millennial reign of Christ is the same kind of thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's another interlude of hope that God has given us to encourage us through this, uh, through this, dark, through this present darkness. Amen? So let's read together. Would you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word out of respect for the speaker, who is God, speaking to us live and direct through his word. So let's listen now to God's inerrant word from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. And shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had been deceived, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us open our eyes to how you have put this book together. 
Help us to look uh, and understand this Bible through the lens of the Bible and not through the lens of our, our news or headlines. And I pray that you would help us to see uh, what Jesus has won for us and the reality that we are experiencing now so that we might be uh, less tempted to trust in the little things of the world and become discouraged and anxious, but we would be able to see who we are, who we are now, what our reality is now, uh, and even, even more what our certain future is with Jesus so that we can be joyful now and we could be courageous now. Uh, so Lord, we pray that your spirit would illuminate us. Help us to see, Lord. Help me to speak clearly and be a transparent channel of your beauty and grace. And we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Have you ever noticed, ever noticed that if you focus on the wrong stuff, you can get really anxious and discouraged really quick? It can feel like life is just totally falling apart. You know, Brian just kind of hit on this in the law. You know, maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe you could just focus too hard on money and paying bills and how are we ever going to get ahead or focusing too much on your neighbor and what they have and what you don't. Uh, maybe you're focusing so hard on, on the pandemic and the possibility of getting sick and uh, it just starts to stress you out. You get anxious, you get discouraged, uh, and you get fearful. And then something happens to change your perspective and you just start thinking about things in a little bit different way. You start focusing on different stuff. You stop worrying about so much about the money. And you start seeing like the rich relationships and the beautiful family that God has given you. Or you stop worrying so much about like getting sick and you see, uh, you know, the promises that we have in Christ. Or you just, you change your perspective a little bit. You focus on something uh, on different or a larger picture of the reality. And all of a sudden things totally change. But nothing really changed. Just your perspective on it changed. And all of a sudden you went from being anxious and discouraged to joyful and courageous. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me every week, man. It happens to me all the time. I'm just, I feel like I'm almost hardwired to like focus in on the negative or the frightening things or to focus on the things that I think that are going to make me happy but end up not making me happy. And then, you know, when I settle down and I refocus on Jesus refocus on his promises, refocuses on, on, on the reality as he sees it and tells me all of a sudden things change. But nothing changed. It's just how I saw it changed, right? That's the purpose of the whole book of Revelation, really. The whole book. When we started this whole book, I said, the, here's the thesis the main idea of this book that everyone is, you know, is, so many people are afraid to even approach and think is so complicated. The big idea of the book is sit tight, Jesus wins. That's it. And over and over again, as we've seen, Jesus is giving us visions and pictures of, of how he is in command of all reality, how we are perfectly safe in him, how nothing can ultimately hurt us, and therefore we can be chill and not worry, not sink into anxiety or not have to sink into anxiety and fear. 
Um, now, I know we're going to be a little anxious and fearful, okay? That's part of life, right? But Jesus is saying, here are some things I want to show you to give you so you, don't, you, don't, you can fight against that. Don't be controlled by it. It's not your ultimate reality, right? So that's the big purpose of Revelation, and that is what I'm going to talk about today. That is the purpose of this passage too, okay? Uh, there's a pattern. Hopefully you've seen we've been breaking down. A lot of you might have been taught that a lot of Revelation is about stuff that's going to happen a long time from now to different other people, and it really doesn't have much to do with us other than to let us know that great things are going to happen a long time from now, or Jesus is going to do this a long time from now. Or maybe even if it's just 40 or 50 years from now, it's still, it's not really about us. Uh, but I hope you've heard enough about Revelation now and so far to see that most of it is really about us. It's about now. It is, in fact, a love letter from Jesus that is meant to give us hope in the midst of all this chaos. Uh, and the millennial reign of Christ is no different it's the same kind of, so far as we've gone through the book, there's been at least three interludes of hope where we kind of stop the action and, uh, and Jesus has given us, or Jesus has given John a vision about the reality, the overarching spiritual reality and his safety and protection in it so that we can calm down. And as all these bombs are going off in Revelation, we can calm down and say, okay, that's true, but we're totally covered and protected. And that is what is happening here. This is not about what's going to happen someday, but this is what is happening right now, okay? Now, there's a little bit about in this that's about someday, but a bigger part of it is about what's happening right now. And so in order to show you that hope, and in order to show you uh, that this is talking about us and this is to give us hope, I have to first... I have to prove to you that the millennium is happening now, right now, and it has been since the, the ascension of Jesus, amen? Uh, and then once I do that, hopefully, it'll be the kind of perspective change that'll help us to see that things really aren't that bad after all. In fact, things are pretty great, and that's the big, th that's in my outline today. The millennium's happening now, things aren't that bad, in fact, Things are pretty great, all right? <laughs> so let's be encouraged. Okay, but I know I got a, a little bit of a big job right off the bat. I gotta, I'm going to do the best I can first uh, to convince you that the millennium is happening now. Okay, now look, there's three big players on the scene of millennial ideas or views about what the millennium is. The first one um, maybe is, uh, the first one is called premillennialism. Uh, and, and, and listen, we're going to have to nerd out a little bit here. I promise to do my best, keep it brief, okay? But I gotta, we gotta, I have to show this to you. Otherwise, the next two points, they won't mean anything to you, okay? So I'll promise to go as fast as I can and only just do as much as we can to show that this is really true, okay? First, first big idea is premillennialism. What that means essentially is that Jesus returns before the millennium, pre-millennium. There's the church age, then Jesus comes back, and then there's a thousand years where he reigns on earth, and then there's the great white throne judgment, and then the eternal state, okay? Um, and in that, in, that, in that view, the, the thousand years is pretty literal. It means a thousand years. 
Okay. Uh, there's another view called post-millennialism, uh, which basically means that Jesus comes back after the millennium. There's the age of the church, and then things in one way, shape, or form, things get steadily better and better, and then the world becomes basically dominated by Christian religion and Christian ethics at least, and it ushers in a world where, uh, where Christ is essentially, or Christ is, or Christianity is so ascendant and dominant in the culture that Jesus then returns, that ushers in the reign of Christ for a thousand years, some people say a thousand years, some people say it's symbolic for a long period of time, and then after that is the great judgment. And then the third view is called amillennial, which means it's kind of an unfair title because ah means no in Greek or it's a negation. So it really means no millennium. But that's not what really is being taught. It's taught that this is now, this is the millennium now that started at the ascension of Jesus, it ends at the return of Jesus. And that all this time uh, from in between those, the church age is when Jesus is reigning and when the saints are reigning with Jesus. Not exactly a thousand years, symbolic for a long period of time, right? And I hope you've seen so far in Revelation, how many other numbers are symbolic? All of them. Everything in Revelation is symbolic, vision, symbols. So, so here's the deal. I'm going to be real quick about this. Postmillennialism depends upon... Uh, this continued advancement of Christianity until the world is essentially Christianized, at least. And, and I think I've, see, I've shown you enough times in the book of Revelation how it itself predicts the decline of the church, that Satan is given the power to make war with them and defeats them. Even that we talked a few, a month ago or so, about a, a, a passage that really defines the practical death of the church in the world. The, a, the practical influence of the church will be so minimized right before Jesus is coming, uh, that I don't see how the post-millennial scheme really works out. Now, I, I know there are very smart people who hold to that scheme, and they have very nuanced ways of describing uh, how that ascendancy works, but at the end of the day, it ends up looking a whole lot like on millennialism, so I'm not really concerned with that, okay? Second view is premillennialism, and premillennialism depends upon revelation being a sequence of events. This happens, then 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 this happens, okay? In order. In other words, we see there's seal judgments, and then there's trumpet judgments, and then there's bowl judgments, and then there's this big last battle with the nations, and then there's the return of Jesus, the millennial reign for a thousand years, and then at the end of that, then the great white throne judgment, and then the eternal state. It depends on that. This happens, that happens, that happens, that happens. However, what have we learned? What's one of the biggest things we've learned about Revelation so far? Is that it has camera angles, right? It shows, it presents the same events happening from different camera angles to highlight different like theological things about the same events, right? I showed you that super clear. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bull judgments. All the same stuff. How do we know? At the end of each one of those, not only do they follow the exact same pattern, the same categories, the same, uh, but at the end of it was the language of the big final battle. At the end of each one of those judgments, we see the final battle and the return of Jesus. 
Uh, if you forgot about that or you want to refresh your memory, go back and listen to one of those old sermons, okay? So, here's the big question. What about this passage? Does this passage, is this a sequential passage because now we're at the end, or does this also have a recapitulation? Is this also a shifting of camera angles? And how do we know that? How can we tell? Uh, at first glance, it really looks like it's sequential, doesn't it? First, Satan bound for a thousand years. Second, souls of the believing dead come back to life and reign. Third, the final battle at the end of the thousand years. Cut and dry. Or is it? <laughs> Look at the final battle. In verses 7 through 10, it describes a final battle, okay? And in that final battle, it says specifically, this is the great battle of Gog and Magog, okay? That's pulled directly out of Ezekiel. The end of Ezekiel, he prophesies about this great final battle where all the nations array themselves against Christ's people, and then Christ returns and destroys all the nations, okay? So we see right after this millennium, is this big battle of Gog and Magog. However, here's the thing. What did we just talk about in Revelation 19? We talked about the great final battle where all the nations were gathered together and that for a final war against the saints and God came down and, and Jesus comes back and destroys everyone. And all that imagery, okay, I'm not gonna go into it, but all that imagery from chapter 19, the final battle, is all pulled out of guess where? Ezekiel, Gog and Magog, battle. And not only that, the same, verse, the same words are spoken over and over again, and he gathered them together for the great battle. Verse 11, or chapter 11, chapter 16, chapter 19, and here in chapter 20, same language. It's the same battle. I mean, how, how many final battles can we have here, folks? It's the final battle, and now it's the final, final battle. Wait, final, final, final battle. No, it's the final battle. It's the final battle. It's really that simple. But when you understand that the Bible, that Revelation recapitulates events or shows the same event again from a different camera angle, you can understand. It's really simple. So what does that mean? I mean, we could throw in some other stuff just for fun. Like why does, why does, why does Jesus bind Satan so that he can't deceive the nations that he just destroyed? That doesn't really work out. Uh, there's all other, other issues, there are other big issues, but this is, I think, enough to show just the idea of recapitulation in itself, the idea that the Bible is not sequential, but shows things from diff the same scenes from different viewpoints, is enough to dispel the idea that it's this, then this, then this, then this. And here, specifically, we see that, that the last battle in verses 7 through 10 is the same last battle in the end of verse, uh, chapter 19, which means what? The millennium precedes the final battle. It's a recapitulation back to the period of time before the final battle and after Jesus' resurrection. And if that's true, if the millennium is happening now, and that gives us a different perspective. It tells us that maybe things aren't all that bad. And that's point two. Things aren't really that bad. First of all, it means this. 
during the millennium, Satan is bound. Okay? Now, maybe you're asking yourself, you should be asking yourself, you'd be all, man, he don't, found, he don't seem so bound to me. Uh, he don't seem so bound to me. How uh, he seems like he's kicking my backside. Can I get an amen? Well, here's what this is saying. Uh, when they arrest high-powered gangsters and put them in the prison system, they do everything they can to isolate them and bind them and imprison them. And yet, still, we know that those gangsters are able to run much of what happens on the street outside of the prison through various ways. Uh, however, the state then is able to sometimes, a lot of times, able to monitor those movements and those actions through their transmissions to see what's happening and then make more arrests. And so they are able to use what those prisoners do from behind bars to then bring more justice. They, they kind of fall into the hands or the play into the state in their investigations, right? They're very much bound, they're very much in prison, and yet they're still able to act, and yet those actions are able to, in one way or another, play into the hands of the state. And that's basically the idea of what's happening here. Satan is bound. He is thrown in prison. However, it is not a total isolation. He is bound in the sense that he is limited in what he can do. He's bound in the sense that he is limited in what kind of power he is able to exercise, and he's only able to do what Jesus allows him to do because he is now completely under Jesus' authority. How do we know that? How do we know that? Listen to what Jesus himself says. In Matthew 12, 29, Jesus is talking about what he's about to do on the cross, and then through the book of Acts, and then through the rest of the church age. He says this, how... He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house? What's he talking about? He's talking about that somehow his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven is going to bind Satan, the strong man, so that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, church, can go in and just plunder his house. Right? And what does that mean? Jesus like, gives us the definition of that in Luke 10 where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's the binding, the casting out, the throwing down to earth. It's all synonymous. And then he says, <clears throat> behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. That means demonic forces. And over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That's the plundering. That's the plundering. So, what does that mean? How is Satan bound specifically? What is he limited in doing? It says right there, look at verse 3. It says, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, does Satan want to just kind of deceive the nations? No, he wants to deceive the nations into gathering together and crushing the church. That's his idea. And so, Translation is uh, what that means, that he cannot and is not allowed to deceive the nations any longer. Here's the, here's the hard and fast translation. Satan can't stop the gospel going into the nations. 
Satan can't spiritually harm the saints. Satan can only do what Jesus allows him to do. He is on a leash. That's what that means. So listen, if that's true, uh, well, let's just ask ourselves, did that happen? Has that happened? In the Old Testament, there was Israel, right? Surrounded by antagonistic nations and out of sight of you know, very rare and very short-lived exceptions to this rule, the, 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 good, the worship of Yahweh did not go out from Israel. They were just routinely crushed back and forth. Even, their, even Israel itself was under serious deception and crushing by Satan. However, Jesus says in the New Covenant, in the New Testament age, in the church age, that's all different now. The gospel is going and is able to go out in power. Satan is prohibited from stopping that. Did it happen? It's fantastic to think about that that happened. Look, look, like I said in the beginning, Israel was a nobody. Israel was a no-account, backwater nation with a backwards little tribal deity. Nobody cared about Israel. And yet... All, after the ascension, the gospel starts going out and the nations start coming to Jesus in droves, in droves. You know where the power centers of Christianity were in like the second century? Baghdad. <laughs> you know, the, the apostles, apostles made it all the way to China by the second century and had huge networks of churches. The gospel went to sub-Saharan Africa, to Ethiopia, right up, we see that right off the bat in the book of Acts. Uh, in the fourth century, Africa was a, the, the power center of the church. And then in God's good providence and timing, the gospel continued to move out and across the globe until all of that actually came true. Satan was not ever able to stop the gospel from going out Satan was not ever able to spiritually harm or hinder God's people. Uh, and any kind of chaos and destruction that he causes is only what Jesus allows for the testing uh, and for the growth of the saints in his church. He is on a leash. It happened. So what does that mean? What does that, I mean, that means... means we have a lot of power, you know? I mean, we, we talk about being weak in the world, and that's true. We're weak in the world. We're weak in worldly things. We're weak in the eyes of the world. And yet, the purpose of God for the church is that this truth and this power would go out through us. We'd be vessels. We wouldn't be powerful in ourselves, but that we would be vessels and channels of the Spirit's power to go out into the world. We're incredibly powerful in the Spirit. Satan can't stop us. We are powerful when we get down to doing what we're supposed to be doing. Can he, like, affect your money? Probably, yeah. Can he affect our health? Maybe, yeah. Uh, he can only do what Jesus allows him to do, and as far as spiritually, he cannot touch us. Can't touch us. And so here's where, listen, here's where that whole proper focus thing comes in, Right? Why do we get anxious? Why do we get discouraged? Why do we get afraid? Because we start focusing in on 
the things of the kingdom of the world. What we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, what we're going to drive, where we're going to go on vacation, where we're going to date, what school we're going to go to, what 401k we're going to invest in. Uh, not that any of those things are bad, but when we hyper-focus and make those the basis of our security, they're inherently unstable. Uh, and we don't have any promised power in any of those things. We have promise from God that we will be spiritually powerful. We have the promises from God that as we go out and be light in the world and in the nations, uh, he will attend that with his power. And we will see the gospel go out in power. Why don't we do that? You know, I have this awful thought, and I'm just going to throw this out there as a little suggestion for all of us to think about. But maybe we're afraid to exercise our spiritual power in the world, in the kingdom of God, because we're afraid of what it might cost us in the kingdom of Satan. But we shouldn't be afraid. We should not be afraid. We should never be afraid. Not only because Satan is bound and we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to advance the kingdom of God into the world, but not only that, we have something else. And this is to the third point. It's not just that things aren't that bad. In fact, things are really pretty great. Why is that? Uh, maybe you've thought a lot about what superpower you would like to have if you were a superhero. I know I have, right? We all sit around. It's just me. No. <laughs> Some people, you know, maybe you want to fly. Maybe you, you want to be invisible. Uh, there's a movie, Shazam. When he first becomes Shazam, they don't know what kind of superpowers he has, and so they're like testing all these superpowers, superpowers out. And the first one they figure out is they're in a, in, a, in a convenience store that gets robbed, and he gets shot, and they find out that he has bullet immunity, and they're just super stoked. They're celebrating that they have bullet immunity. My son Robbie has just discovered that he has Nerf bullet immunity. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. All last night, I'm trying to finish my sermon, and he comes with his shirt off and goes, shoot me, shoot me, Dad throwing me his gun and I'm popping him in the chest with the bullets and he's just amazed and delighted and giggling that he has complete nerf bullet immunity. Uh, but you have a superpower. You have a superpower. You know what your superpower is? You have the superpower of death immunity. Listen to what this says in verses four through six. And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those two whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Jesus, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he, uh, who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. And that part in there where it says 
It says, I saw thrones, and then those seated on them were those to whom authority was committed. And then it says, also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Special shout out for martyrs. But then it includes everybody and those who would not worship the beast or its image and do not receive its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. That's all the saints that remain faithful in the church age. And what does it say about us? It says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So check it out. What does that mean? So if the millennium's not something way in the future that's for other people, if the millennium is happening now, that means that this is true of us now. This isn't something that's going to be true of us then. This is what's true of us now. We have come to life and we are reigning with Christ for the whole period of this millennial reign. Now look, technically, technically I suppose, the experts, the experts say this happens at death when we die. for Christians who are in Christ, death is the first resurrection, where we are brought into the heavenly realms, seated on thrones, and we begin this reign, this reign with Jesus, right? However, one of my favorite Jesus quotes is from John 5:24, and this is what he says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has." eternal life, current possession. Not just that, he does not come into judgment. Why? Because he has passed from death to life, which tells me that the point of transition from death into life is faith, it's belief, it's regeneration. When we believe upon Jesus' words, when we believe upon him, which means that we stop trusting in ourselves and we start trusting in Jesus' life, his righteousness given to us, his death on the cross as the basis for our salvation, when we do that, that's the transition. That's when we pass from death into life. And what that means, what does that mean? That means when we die physically, our physical death it's really, it's just, an, it's just a transition from one expression of life that's soiled and deformed, uh, still has a lot of beauty in it, but is racked by sin into a greater expression of life that's free from sin and free from distortion. That is pure beauty. And not only do we have first death immunity, we have second death immunity. There's the first death, which is physical death. Second death is eternal death or eternal judgment. And it says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, which is being regenerated, dying in Christ, reigning with Jesus during this millennium reign. Uh, But Over such, the second death has no power. Why? 
Why does the second death have no power? Why is it that we've already passed into judgment or after judgment? It's because we have eternal life because Jesus has given his life for us and then given us his life. And we will never come into judgment because Jesus was judged for us in our place. So that's a past tense. The white throne judgment is not a, it's not a judgment for us. It's a vindication. We're going to see that next week. And we have already made the transition from death into life. So from here on out, it's just transitions from one life to greater life, right? Death immunity. Death immunity. So what does that mean? We focus on that. We focus on the power that we have in the spirit. Power God has given us to act in the spirit, to carry out the mission of the church, trusting that God's going to give us all the things we need. He promises that so we don't have to trip. Uh, and then we remember who we are, that we've already passed, we've already made that great transition from death into life. And that from here on out, we have nothing to look forward to but greater expressions of life as we can transition from this world and into the next world and then eventually into resurrection power and the eternal world that Jesus won for us. Amen? So don't be anxious. Don't be discouraged. Be joyful and be courageous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the power that it gives to us and the hope that it gives to us. God, we know by midweek we're going to be under a pile of worry. <laughs> and so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember these things. You promise us, Lord. You promise you're going to care for us. You promise you take care of all the stuff we need in this world. And we pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray that you would uh, give us this day our daily bread. We asked you, told us to pray for the stuff we need the stuff that will give us a comfortable life. You promised to do that. You promised that all the things that we need will be added on to us and that what you want us to do is to focus first on the kingdom of God, focus on first who we are, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, what the promises he's made for us are, and the reality of what we live in now, that we live in resurrection power. And that as we go out to expand the kingdom of God, which should be always on our minds whether it be in discipling our children loving our wives loving our husbands or sharing the faith with a friend or neighbor or coming and worshiping Lord help us to focus on those things and you promise that we'll be joyful and that we'll have peace beyond comprehension and that you will help Lord to cut to, to cut the edge off the suffering and pain of this world as we wait Lord and we pray, Father, we know that this new world uh, is no farther away for any of us than our death. And so that makes it really good news, Lord. We pray that we would be hopeful in that. We pray that you would help us to use every moment wisely. Every moment wisely, Lord. As an act of worship and gratitude for the salvation that we've received in Jesus. Amen.